I'm Julian G. Simmons. This is Talking About Our Generation. For those of you who are already part of the Talking About Our Generation family, welcome back. And for those of you who are new to our podcast, welcome. This podcast is all about connection, sharing, caring, communicating, aimed at baby boomers like me, those of us born between 1946 and 1964. We're about remembering who we were and what we've accomplished and what all that means today, right now, because that conversation is really important. We launched last year on the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, an event that had a major influence on our generation. So we started with a series called the Woodstock Episodes, which are conversations with people who made Woodstock happen and who created that amazing, magical Woodstock spirit that still lives on in many of us today. This week, we're talking to Carol Green, who was one of the staff cooks who saw that magic firsthand. Later, we're going to hear a rare interview with Richie Havens, the man who made Freedom the music of the moment. But first, here's our talk with Carol. So, Carol, you were the cook. You're cooking the crew. Right. All crew. So tell us about that. Well, there were 80 of us living in the Diamond Horseshoe, which was a condemned, abandoned hotel. When we walked into the kitchen, there were dishes on the table with cobwebs on them. Like in the middle of a meal, someone just came, like Martians came and took the people away. <laughs> I swear, there, this was the way the kitchen table, I mean, and the kitchen table is a table for a big industrial kitchen for a hotel. It wasn't like you and I sitting down at my house. But in, in a way, it was perfect because you're going to be cooking for 80 people, maybe more, all crew mostly. Right. The executives lived in another place, some other flunky motel. What was the atmosphere like? We were a bunch of hippies. We were just young kids. And we're out there. We have, we're like in the middle of the country. We're working. And then what <laughs> are we going to do? There was one uh, shuffleboard stick and a broken <laughs> basketball net. <laughs> and us. So we got to know each other, and we got to hang, and we got to love each other and fight, too. There were many meetings about, we had our dogs there. There were many meetings about who left what, which <laughs> dog left what on the staircase that somebody stepped in. That was a very big conversation. My God. I mean, we were working really hard. So it wasn't like we were partying at night, but this was, everybody was really sexy really sexy. <laughs> so there was a lot of sleeping around. <laughs> but there was serious organizational things going on for months before it happened. Yeah. I mean, there were a few key people who were our grown-ups, and they guided us. Michael Lang, John Roberts, Joel Rosenman, and Artie Kornfeld. They were the four. And from them, everybody else was hired. Michael Lang was the inception. They were going in and meeting with the elders in the community and the deal makers and coming up with plans to, no matter what, make this happen. Was that energy contagious with everybody else? I mean, 
You know, did like Michael come over and gather everybody up and give a talking to everybody? Well, or? No, it wasn't that way. I mean, I don't know. Michael Lang has this little shining star over him, or he did for a long time, and I hope he still does. And he had this optimism. We had this optimism about everything. And a lot of it was just Michael's kind of beingness. Not that he'd say, okay, we're going to win. We're going to fight. We can do this. There was just spoken and unspoken agreement that we're going to continue. And we can do this no matter what. Make this happen. So, I mean, (laughs) we had a mission. And it was really exciting. It sounds like it. Our guys on these crews could do anything. We were only on that last site, the real site, for maybe three weeks, maybe. Mm -hmm. And from nothing emerges this stage that was incredible. We had a turntable with three semicircles, so you could load one band, turn the turntable around, have one playing, one as a backup already loaded, and one on the side to load. Oh, really? Wow. Well, the crew, I think they're visionaries. And without them, the visionaries can't apply their vision. Was it was that energy contagious with everybody else? I mean, because I'm wondering what it was, other than a job, that kept that spirit alive and moving forward. You know, what was magical about it? Was anything magical about it? Everything. Everything was magical about it. I mean, I, I feel that every once in a while, the cosmic tweezers picks me up and puts me in another spot that is, that is life-changing. And in this case, the cosmic tweezers put me in, in, in the country. I mean, here we are living in the country. We're, we're being paid. We're all eating together. We're all hanging around. I mean, can you imagine all these people living and, and working together and, and shoulder to shoulder trying to make something happen? like a rock festival with this incredible lineup of stars. I mean, from Joan Baez to to Janis Joplin, to the Jefferson Airplane, to the Grateful Dead, to The Who, to Jimi Hendrix. So, I mean, that was, (laughs) it was really exciting. And what was going on was that there were other festivals around the country and the crowds were growing. I remember people from the Atlanta Music Festival calling us and say, get ready. We just had 250,000 people and they're coming your way. So there was this kind of tsunami of energy that was building and moving toward us. And as we got closer to the moment that we would start, people didn't, we weren't sleeping at that point. And certainly the people in stage crew weren't sleeping. And they were taking drugs to stay awake in the cherry picker on the crane held up over the lighting trusses. This was scary stuff. And somehow or other, nobody, nobody died. It's interesting. We were recently watching the original Woodstock movie. And in the beginning, there was one of the stage crew is taking a huge spotlight to the top of this one tower that's part of the stage. And he's just hanging on it. And they're the crane is pulling it up and he's just hanging on it as it goes up there. And I'm just thinking, my God, you know, I'm thinking about just how precarious he that situation was and also about the rains that are going to be <laughs> coming to that situation. It was pretty intense. Not only are the rains that were coming during the festival, but the, the rains had been going on all summer. So it was soggy. It was muddy. It was, uh, it was... 
It was a mess. And those people in the cherry pickers and those people up on those lighting trusses and, you know, on a wire, they might have been on LSD to stay awake because something had to keep them awake and coffee wasn't doing it. But it was pure grit and commitment. We were so busy and so involved and so you know, immersed, making sure everybody survived and had something to eat and survived the weather. And there were people building the roads and where we had the groovy road intersecting with Enlightenment Way. My day was making breakfast, serving breakfast, um, making lunch, taking it out to the site, buying the food, sitting down for a few minutes, making the food, serving the food and going to bed. And then the hog farmers arrived. So there's a whole new contingent of humanity that arrived and, and we had to deal with them. I mean, Stanley Goldstein, one of the people who was on that more or less executive level, even though Stanley would never would have, he was just this brilliant character, had the idea of bringing in the hog farmers for security, not police with guns, not, you know, German shepherds trained to kill. But people trained to find, people who lived to, in, in peace or to create peace. So when somebody had a bad acid trip or a problem, they'd talk them through, support them, and, and be a mirror to them in, in a really kind of, not spoken, but a kind of a Buddhist way. They lived out in the field. What was the energy like between all of you guys and the hog farmers? Well, I was curious, but I was kind of pissed off when they showed up because I was cooking for a certain amount of people and the hog farmers had, you know, bottomless pits. (laughs) And not only were they eating, but they were grabbing food for anybody would walk by here, have have like, you know, some spaghetti. (laughs) So I was planning a certain amount every day and they... They showed up, and we had to double everything. When it started getting closer to the time that actually the festival was going to be happening, what was the atmosphere like? Just working harder, faster. How the hell are we going to do this? And then maybe a week before the festival started, people started coming in, drifting in dribs and drabs, and there was in front of the stage, as we were there, this Crowds started building right in front of the stage, watching what was happening as the stage was being built and the lighting trusses were hung. And, you know, somebody would walk by with, with a piece of wood and they and 10,000 10, people would applaud. They're, you know, then they were not going to move. They were, you know, it's like the first in line. They were there. When the concert was happening and all the people were there, what was your reaction when you went there and saw what was actually happening from all this work that you had done? Say, like, can they go home? <laughs> this is our place. I don't want no 50,000 hippies here. We were having such a nice time on the land by ourselves. That's funny. <laughs> so then it grew to a lot more than 50,000, though. It was, it was, that was I, I, incredible. This field, this amazing piece of land, because it was so green against this blue sky. Suddenly there were, I don't know how many thousands of people. It was pretty amazing. If there's a memory that is really vivid with you of that time, you know, the the thing that really sticks with you 
over and over whenever you think of it. What what was that moment? One really seminal moment was looking out over the field as hundreds of thousands of people were there and hearing the sound come on. Because before that, it's crickets and people talking and walking and cars here and there and hammers. And I heard this sound echo, and the sound was beautiful. And I knew everything was going to be all right. How is it out there? And those of you in the back, hear well. Raise your hand, please. Let's welcome Mr. Richie Haven. Richie Havens. I found out recently that he made Freedom Up on the spot, and it became an anthem, and he played that and just sang Freedom, you know, over and over and over again. And it just, it was like the sound of, was like a drone that would be in your bloodstream. Thank you, Richie Havens. Thank you. When you ask about what are some of those moments, when Jimi Hendrix was playing the Star Spangled Banner? boyfriend had taken our Volkswagen bus to the site but ran out of gas and just limped it along. It's out there on a hill on the site, which is where we slept during the festival, not all that far from the stage. And that Monday morning, we were going to go home, exhausted, could barely speak. And we rolled the bus down to behind the stage where there was a gas tank. So we could put gas in our Volkswagen bus to go home. And we're right behind the stage and Jimi Hendrix was just electrifying, electrifying beyond anything I had ever seen. And I had seen a lot of rock and roll. And there's, there's an intangibility about it and why we're still talking about it 50 years later like it's some hallowed moment in time, which it is. The expression of a generation of people who were committed to being alive, a lot of those who were committed to being alive because the, the alternatives was literally dying in a war that made no sense, that was manufactured. And we saw through that at the time. We knew it was a lie. We know it's a lie. And we know that what's going on now is a lie. And we want our voices to be heard so that more people are sick. I mean, choose. You want to live in peace? Or you want to live in constant conflict and constant fear? You know, I, I, I choose from column A. The Jimi Hendrix Experience. What do you think you took away from that experience of Woodstock? Because for you, it was different. I mean, you weren't somebody who got in a car with a bunch of friends to go hear the music. You were there for months before. 
you were working hard, and you were one of the reasons that it all came together. So, you know, everyone is a, is a cog in the wheel, you know, it's all, you're all important. So I don't know if you realized that at the time, you probably didn't, but when it was all over and you were in the car going home, what did you think? I am eternally grateful to the Cosmic Tweezers and Michael Lang that I was chosen to be part of the Woodstock family and the Woodstock nation. I am very proud of that. I will always be, if there's one thing in my life, and I've done some interesting things, it has a resonance to it. It has a purpose to it. You know, this make love, not war stuff is real. It's in my blood. It's in my bones. It's in my being. What is the definition of Woodstock Nation to you? What is that? The definition of Woodstock Nation is the spirit of humanity, of coming together to share peace and music, and the essence of freedom, celebration, reason to be. If there's any reason to be, it's, it's to celebrate life. And most of us, me included, don't cel- we, we celebrate life, I would say, less than we grind through. And this was a celebration of life. We had so many dreams back. I mean, Woodstock, the, the Summer of Love, Woodstock, the anti-war movement created its own kind of army, an army of love and peace and togetherness. And when you look at what, what was happening in Vietnam and what's happening now, it's very distressing. And you can question, did we have any impact? I feel in our, in our generation, in every generation, there are people who are motivated by greed and anger and murder and whatever, uh, you know, the dark side. And there are people who want to live in peace. It seems like we are at this pivotal moment in history where we can go one of two directions. And one is obviously very dark. And the other is is maybe more like Woodstock. If we could go in that direction, which was that sharing, that caring, that compassion that I feel that was part of Woodstock. And if we recognize that connection, maybe we'll just leave the door ajar a little bit so that the idea of living in a connected, sympathetic, empathetic, compassionate, forward-moving way to allow each other this individuality and freedom What can we do, the generation that came out of that, us baby boomers, to harness that energy? Obviously, it's different because we're older now. We don't have the same energy. We have health issues. Some of us just want to retire and forget about everything. But do you think we have a responsibility still? I feel that we, that I need to be vigilant to listen to the sounds of what is happening now and what is possible so that to my ability, I will contribute. I don't get up early in the morning and go and water all the plants in the neighborhood and give out political flyers. I don't. There's so much more that I could contribute in so many different ways. Part of what my contribution is, to take it back to the Woodstock Nation, 
you know, having that spirit and passing it along and listening or know that this moment in time is right to hear what another person is saying and be there for them and help them open their eyes to what is possible so that they can contribute, they can live in peace, whether they contribute or not. Living in peace is a contribution. I think about the world that we are living in, the world that will be here for our sons, daughters, grandchildren, their grandchildren. I worry personally about our youth and what kind of world they're going to have once we're gone. And I wouldn't have felt that way back 50 years ago. I I would have been a lot more hopeful. And how is it for you thinking about where we were and where we are now? In that time, you had a son. Yeah. He's my, my son is a very unusual person. He's the smartest person I have ever met in my life. And I'm not saying that because he's my son. He's at the Miami Beach Botanical Gardens now. He works there. And his card says compost and fertility. But he has an ability to plant the seed and wait for it to grow. And he has an ability to see that that seed is part of a forest. And he has the vision to see something to fruition. And he has the understanding of that crazy power that I'm talking about, that huge monster of, of a societal force that holds us down. And he is living and educating himself to live on the land and off the land. And he can limit himself so that he can focus and complete something and bring it into fruition and fertility. And most of us don't have the ability to delay gratification. We see some shiny object and go toward the shiny object when we don't give credibility to the fact that we have plenty of light right here. Let us bless this light. Let us live in this light. Let us share this light. And he does. Do you see the the energy, the philosophy of Woodstock Nation? in your son? I am very happy to say that I see the son of a founding member of the Woodstock Nation in his eyes, in my son's eyes. I see the spirit, I hear the politics, I hear the philosophizing, and I'm, I'm so happy that he found the earth and that he's nurturing the earth to nurture the rest of us that's exactly what he's doing. He blows my mind when he talks to me about microbiology. The last thing that I would think would hold my interest. I'm fascinated. I mean, it's fascinating to realize that everything on this planet touches each other. We are all connected. And, and if we recognize that connection, maybe we'll just leave the door ajar a little bit so that the idea of living in a connected, sympathetic, empathetic, compassionate, forward-moving way to allow each other this individuality and freedom of, of who we are in this, it's not just philosophical, it's an actual way. Wonderful. 
I'm so glad that you took some time to talk to us and to be a part of this. Oh, thank you. We will be talking to you again soon. There were some things that Carol said, who, by the way, is a dear friend of mine who I've known for many years, about what the definition is of the Woodstock Nation, and that was freedom, a reason to be. And for that brief period back in the summer of 69, we got a vision of how things could be, a vision of peace, love, and community. And millions of us felt it, and in many ways, the music was that message. And that brings us to the amazing Richie Havens, the first performer, as you probably remember, at Woodstock, who was barely known to most of us. He wasn't even supposed to be the first performer on, and he tells a wonderful story, which we have in this rare interview from 2002, from a program called Speaking Freely, and we're able to share a bit of that with you here, thanks to Jonathan Thompson of the Freedom Forum. Here's Richie Havens. We got there pretty early and, and without any problems, actually. We thought we were going to have at least some. And because they expected 75,000 people, you know, <laughs> that was big, you know, that was going to be big enough. And, and um, we, we arrived and, and basically we sat around the hotel, all the bands just sat around, you know, different rooms visiting each other for hours and thinking, well, something's wrong here. It's now 3.30 in the afternoon, and no one's left the hotel. And of course, they didn't want to tell us they couldn't get anybody to the field. Um, all of the roads were blocked. So they found a farmer down the road with a bubble helicopter, one of those glass bubbles, who landed right outside my window at the Holiday Inn. And then I hear, Richie, would you go over? You have the least instruments. <laughs> so I said, no problem, you know. I'm flying over there, and the minute I flew over the field and saw all of those people and thought, uh, well, they can't hide us anymore. And, and I thought, now we are above ground. We're no longer relegated to underground by the press or the government or uh, all of those other people. Uh, we were now above ground, and we, we were there to celebrate with each other. Then I realized when I got there, I was the only person there that could have gone on. So I ran for an hour as they chased me around, trying to get me to go on first. It was just three and four hour late concert. They were going to kill me for the promotion, <laughs> I thought, you know. So I, I hid for about an hour and a half. They finally convinced me to, you know, it's okay just to go on. Uh, and that's how it all began. I went off seven times. And they'd say, go back, do two more, three more, two more. Finally, I, I said, I, I don't have any more songs to sing. I'm finished. I don't, that was the last one I know. Oh. And they said, one more. And I go back. And the long intro you hear on Freedom is actually me stalling, uh, trying to figure out what am I going to sing? I don't have any more songs. Well, Freedom came out because I looked out and, saw, and felt that I was actually seeing the freedom that we as a generation had been seeking since the 1950s. I felt um, that we were accomplishing it right then. So the word freedom came out. And then Motherless Child came out, which I hadn't sung in about nine or 10 years. Um, and I used to sing it traditionally in a more traditional. And, and right in the middle of that, a, another part of a hymn that I hadn't sung 
since I was 16 with a family. I used to sing that song. It came out. And I have to tell you the honest truth. I actually didn't know I had done that until I saw the movie a year and a half later. For real. I mean, I just walked up the stage. That was something that happened. It just completely disappeared. And a year and a half later, uh, they, when they asked me to come look at the film, I didn't even remember kind of doing it. <laughs> it was naturally uh, something that happened right on the spot, you know. So, it, and, and then again, it didn't belong to me after that. It belonged to everybody who was there. They, they made it happen. It really had less to do with the people who were playing the music. I, I, I would really say that probably 10% of the people on stage for the whole three days were really known by the audience and all the rest were discovered there. Not only the audience discovering people, but we as musicians discovering other musicians that we had never heard was Crosby, Stills and Nash's first gig <laughs> on stage. It was totally magic because of that, because it was totally a happening. No one went on stage when they were supposed to. The lineup was completely kibosh. <laughs> to me, it was the change of the planet. It really was. It was something large enough for people in other countries to see us making a move in the United States. Because it truly, before Woodstock, um, I used to get a lot of questions about how the lesser um, thought of people in the United States, like the people on the bottom rung, how are they doing? You know, questions, you know, like the Native Americans, the Afro-Americans, and many people were around the world were going, how are they doing? You know, when it, so it was consciousness to them that something was also amiss here that we had to take care of. And when that happened, they felt we did. They felt we actually rose above that underground status. It's so amazing to hear Richie Havens and his wonderful voice. He really embodies the Woodstock spirit, and he lived that his whole life. In fact, he wanted his ashes spread over Max Yasker's farm. So when he passed away in 2013, they got in a small plane and scattered his ashes along with some flowers across the fields while thousands of people gathered in the green fields below. If you want to listen to the rest of this interview with Richie, it is available online and we'll include a link on our website to the Freedom Forum. As we've said many times, we love to hear from you. And on that note, here are some comments from our listeners. Hi, this is Eric Seidman from Palo Alto, California. Thank you for this podcast. I am enjoying it. Several years after Pete Townsend penned the lyrics talking about my generation, he, of course, appeared at Woodstock with The Who. And several years later, he produced a solo effort in the early 90s in, entitled Psycho Derelict. In it, he voiced a character that was sort of an alter ego, that of an aging rocker. Toward the end of the piece, he mused, Whatever became of peace, love, and all that lovely hippie shit. Looking back, I realized that those values were always a bit amorphous, but I think those that lived through those times had a general notion that we were discarding some of what we saw as wrongheaded values of our parents, and that we had ideas that would make things better when we came of age and took power. 
looking at what we have become, we couldn't have been more wrong. I loved hearing photographer Henry Diltz in your previous episode describe how he still lives by and embodies those values, working for the common good and yes, peace and love. So I guess my question is, where did it all go so wrong and how can we get it back? Or even if our current struggle with the pandemic could provide an impetus for the rebirth of that type of thinking. Hi, I'm Tom Pope. And I'm Susan Pope. We live in Los Angeles, but we met in Chicago. It was the summer of 69. Everybody was filled with the Woodstock spirit, and that's what inspired us to uh, move west to San Francisco, where everything seemed to be happening. We were all celebrating peace and love and music, more individually, but this was the first time we were all in it together. So we weren't at Woodstock, but we were there in spirit. Yeah, we didn't make it, but Woodstock made it to us. It filled us with hope for a better way to live. The energy defined our culture. Life magazine called us the Woodstock generation. And we still are. Yeah, it still lives, not nearly as loudly as it once did, but music still sustains us in love and peace. When Woodstock happened, even though we weren't there, we were busy falling in love. Woodstock was in the air, and the fragrance was intoxicating. We were married on Mount Tamalpais. An open-air theater, home to the first rock concert. And it was beautiful, overlooking the bay. A small gathering of the tribe was idyllic. It was. It was the best summer of our lives. And we've been living the Woodstock dream ever since. The big question that Eric, Tom, and Susan raised is, have we lost that magic? Where did it go? Can we get it back? Well, talking about our generation, this podcast is about answering those questions. The answers are going to be different for all of us. So let us know what you think about all that. Just record your comments on your phone using the Voice Memo app and email us the audio file to ourgen.com. O-U-R-G-E-N 2019 at gmail.com. And if you're not sure about how to do the recording, visit our website where you'll find some instructions there. It's talkingaboutourgeneration.com and that's talking without the G and about without the A. We'll try to get it into the podcast. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter to be notified of future episodes while you're visiting our website. And when you listen to our podcast on whatever your favorite podcast platform is, make sure you like our podcast before you leave. We'll be back next week with a fascinating behind-the-scenes conversation with John Morris, who was the head of production at Woodstock 69. Please join us and be a part of the conversation. I'd also like to give a shout-out to Billy Aldridge, who's given us more music for this episode, and also a word of thanks to our director, Rob Wilson. We'd like to end this podcast episode with a song from Richie Havens that he performed on Speaking Freely back in 2002. It's called Paradise from his CD, Wishing Well. There's a thousand roads that get there 
and each one looks the same. And with every step you're thinking, should you have gone the other way? There are those who give direction, even though they lost themselves. And those who finally get there, never leave no trace of a trail. So if you're searching for some peace of mind, out in a world that is cold and unkind, hoping someone will throw you a line. Paradise is a hard place, hard place to find. There are wise old men who'll tell you that it's up there in the sky. But I've flown up there in jumbos, and believe me, it's a lie. There are those who think it's here and now. What you do with every day? We better make the best of living. We're gonna die for sure someday. Searching for some peace of mind. Out in a world that is cold and unkind. Hoping someone will throw us a line. Paradise is a hard place. Paradise is a hard place. Paradise is a hard place. Hard place to find. I'm not trying to be no prophet. I'm not trying to change your mind. But I think that this searching is. Just a waste of time, just a waste of time. There are those who have religion. Teach them how to live each day. Yes, they believe in paradise. All you've got to do is pray. But me, myself, I'm easy. I don't really have to know. Just as long as I'm still breathing, and I've got somewhere to go, searching for some peace of mind. Out in a world that is cold and unkind, hoping someone will. Throw us a line. Paradise is a hard place. Paradise is a hard place. Paradise is a hard place. Hard place to find. Stay safe. 
Stay healthy, everybody. I'm Julian G. Simmons. Thanks for listening. COVID-19 is spreading in the United States, and leaving your home increases your chances of getting and spreading the virus. Stay home except to get groceries, medications, or other essentials. Check state or local government guidance for where you are. If you must leave the house for essential items, take the following steps to help avoid the spread of COVID-19. Maintain social distance, approximately 6 feet or 2 meters from others. Wear a cloth face covering in public. For more information, visit cdc.gov. This podcast includes copyrighted material which has not always been specifically authorized by the copyright owner. This content is used only where it is the specific subject of commentary by us and our guests, as part of our effort to advance understanding of issues of social and historical significance. We believe that this constitutes a fair use of the material in accordance with the Fair Use Section of U.S. Copyright Law, Section 107, which reads, The Fair Use of a Copyrighted Work, for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research, is not an infringement of copyright. Further information on this claim of fair use may be found on our website at talkingaboutourgeneration.com.